Hello and welcome to The Download. I'm your host, Dave Richardson, and really special guest today. Uh, we'd love to get him on more, but if uh, Eric LaSalle is the hardest working economist in Canada, hardest working chief investment officer in Canada has to be the chief investment officer at RBC Global Asset Management, Dan Jornis, the boss. Dan, how you doing? Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Probably don't like the boss reference because you're not much of a Springsteen guy. You're more Rolling Stones. Or do you like Springsteen too? A big, big boss fan as well. No, and I, I'm a rock and roll fan. But you're right about the Rolling Stones. If there's an ordinal list, that would be it. Yeah, and uh, and and we, I know we could talk rock and roll for uh, for hours. Uh, but people come here to listen to this podcast to hear about uh, investment matters. And we've had lots of your team on over the last few weeks talking about what's going on in markets, what our overall view is. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's great to have the top of the house on to, to sort of uh, to give your view. It's always interesting, your thoughts on, on where we're at. And, and when you're looking at markets, you look at everything that's going on around us. Um, what are you thinking about these days, Dan? Well, at first, I'm thinking a lot about it. I, I, as you mentioned, uh, having uh, my partners on your call over the last several weeks, I've spent a lot of time with my partners. You know, for, for 20-odd years now, four times a year, we've all met, all the senior investors have met to discuss the outlook for the economy and market. We did that over the last two weeks, and so it was a great time to feel fairly fresh in the view. And, uh, you know, while our views are, are always evolving, I think our central tendency is, is, is still the same. We think that we're fairly early in an economic recovery. Uh, we think that uh, interest rates uh, have uh, in, in their rise, but a lot of the sort of acute risk that we saw for further rises has been dampened. Always room for a little higher yields, but uh, much of the damage is already done. Uh, for the stock market, uh, uh, our, our concern has to do purely with valuations. Is the market a bit ahead of itself? Oh, possibly. And we've, in fact, been trimming our positions a bit uh, as a result of that. But we don't think that ultimately the, the current cycle won't be validated by the very, very strong earnings that we're coming through and that the market ultimately will have further to rise. So we continue to have overweights and equities as we have for a very long time now. Yeah, but, but, but a little bit, as, as you say, taking, taking a little bit off the table recently and, and, and look, looks like it, it's been a fairly good call so far, uh, and, and just on valuation. So, so where, are you, where are you seeing equity valuations um, in aggregate uh, globally, but, but are there any particular pockets of concern that you're, that you're keying in on in terms of, of high valuations? Well, it's, 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 uh, it's a fascinating area to look at right now. If we look globally at our equilibrium models, we aggregate the degree of over-under valuation. The world is about 17% above what we would consider fair value. So that's not outstandingly expensive. It's a bit expensive. But it's, it's mostly pocketed in the United States. Yeah. Just like the United States on forward earn, on trailing earnings, 30 times earnings, Canada, 25 times earnings, EM, 25 times earnings, Europe and the United Kingdom, Asia, 20 times earnings. And, and, you know, that 20 times earnings number is a very reasonable number when you have such low rates of, rates of inflation and strong growth in the future. So, you know, it might be that the U.S. is a bit ahead of itself, uh, but then the earnings that are coming through are much stronger than we're expected. So if it's a bit ahead of itself, that's one thing. It's not a lot ahead of itself. You know, we originally ended the year looking for, uh, in uh, 2022, which we're very soon going to be looking into for earnings, looking for, you know, 190 maybe 200 We see estimates now as high as $250 for S&P earnings 
2022. And these numbers are still rising strongly. On a year-on-year -year basis, we're up at like 50% in the first quarter. Now, of course, those are hugely skewed numbers. We're going to get very strong nominal growth in GDP. You know, we're going to get you know, something like as much as 9% nominal GDP growth. They've, few of us have ever lived through 9% GDP growth. That's going to drive 10% margins on, uh, on the S&P and result in something like somewhere between 25 and 30% earnings growth out over the next 18 months. So, yes, the U.S. market's a little ahead of itself. It's the biggest market. It draws everything to making look a little more expensive, which is not all that true. Uh, and I think what the market is experiencing now is the old, you know, buy on mystery, sell on history. Now that the earnings have been reported, it's explosive. It takes a rest. But I think there will be much more earnings coming forward in the future. And, and, and just for just for people listening, the, uh, the 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 math on that two hundred and fifty dollars of earnings for the S and P. If I put a twenty multiple on that, then I'm at five thousand for the S and P five hundred. Correct? Exactly. And that you know the, some might be uncomfortable with the twenty multiple, and I, I think they should grow comfortable with that. Though with time, when you have secularly low inflation and interest rates and a growing economy, and you don't have a lot of other choices to invest your assets and get more than a single digit return. I think liquid equities will trade at a higher multiple than we've grown used to. So in our math, the absolute neutral point, the fair value number for equities is close to 19 right now. Moving the multiple then up to 20, 21, something like that, that's not that hard of a push. You add something like 200 to 250 in earnings, and that's why the market's been so strong. Yeah, and, and, and as you say, un, un, unprecedented growth uh, in, in our lifetimes, really. I know I was in, in China a few years back, and they were growing at 9%. Uh, it, it, I saw, saw what that felt like. It, uh, it, it, it makes things interesting. But it also raises the specter of inflation, and you've heard a lot of that uh, if, if we're just, you know, in, in, in the general news, not just in the financial news. It's gotten out into the general public. Uh, around you know rising prices, people are seeing it at the grocery store when they go to buy lumber or or, or things uh, for their garden, for that matter. And, and and so we just saw an inflation report out of the U.S. that saw you know some pretty significant numbers, and particularly significant when you start to say this number was is as high was last this high back in 2008, or it was last this high in 1981. Um, but so where do you think we are with respect to inflation? Um, what's happening right now? So why do those numbers look so big, and where do you think we end up? I think it's another great and timely question, Dave. The, the, and and, and uh, Eric LaSalle and his team have done some excellent work in this area, and it's very important to our view because if we get inflation wrong, much of the rest of this is wrong. One of the reasons why valuations are so high is because inflation is expected to stay low. If that's not right, while you're going to get a little more pricing power in corporations and maybe even a little more earnings growth out of it, more importantly, the value of those earnings falls as your discount rate falls so, or rises. So, so uh, we need to be very sure of our forecast in this area. Yes, today's PPI number, yesterday's CPI, uh, is kind of a gut check for all of us. And, and uh, you know, that the, we, expect that we expected that inflation would rise, perhaps not quite as much as it has, but almost as much as it has. Uh, in the latest releases, partially because of base effects. I mean, the comparisons are just so low because, after all, the economy was effectively shut uh, a, a year ago. And then you have some supply-side problems where you commodity prices rising because 
mentioned lumber, for example. We've had the we've had a shutdown in in in, in gas supply in the United States at the pipeline. There are some short-term and even intermediate and longer-term pressures on resource pricing. Uh, there's a huge amount of liquidity in the economy that's being gradually unleashed. That's driving purchasing decisions. That will actually create shortage. Also drives them. But then if you look at the slack that remains in the economy and some of the intermediate-term factors are actually working the other way, and certainly longer-term factors are. You know, we're an aging population globally. Nominal GDP growth rates have been falling for many years. They're going to continue to fall. That in itself is dampening on inflation. We pull all those things together and say, you know, in the short term, inflation could rise for another couple of months, three months, for perhaps. In the intermediate and longer term, it will start to flatten out and move back towards or below 2% because the important longer-term forces uh, are greater than those in the short term. What we need to watch, though, isn't reported inflation. It's inflation expectations. We all believe that central bankers have the ability to control inflation and know a lot more about it now than they did when I was in university and we had the last big spike of uncontrolled inflation. As long as we can look to things like the tips market, the river return bond market, surveys of inflation, and see that they're still anchored around two, maybe two and a half where they are now, that's fine. People say this is transitory. But if people all believe that inflation is actually out of control, it'll show up in those market-based, uh, market-based expectation number first, um, and uh, it will become a problem. It's not there. Yeah, I, I, I've used the analogy of uh, it's a little, little harder, uh, easier on video than it is on, a, on, on an audio podcast. Uh, my hair is really long, Dan, as you can see, the, the, the listeners can't. Uh, and uh, it's only long because of the pandemic and we're locked down, so I can't go to a barber and get a haircut. And also, if you look at my hair, it's not even really that long. It's just long compared to the way it normally is, which is pretty short, and that's kind of inflation. Uh, the minute things return back to normal, you kind of get through the uh, the upset of the pandemic. Uh, my hair will just go back to where it was the same, uh, unless I start to think about my hair differently and go, eh, maybe long hair is the way things are going to be, and uh, and that's uh, that's around expectations and inflation expectations. So uh, I, I can tell you uh, just to uh, to reassure everyone, I'm getting a haircut. So Dan, you won't have to worry about uh, uh, my my professional look as part of the firm, but. Uh, we, I think people have heard enough about my hair on this podcast. I'm, I'm, We're just I'm, glad, I'm just glad you have a choice. <laughs> yeah, with, with, you know, Dan, it's, there's, there's a reason why we do audio here. And uh, but um, so 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 Dan, are there are there any are there any parts of the world that you think are are, are a particularly uh, good opportunity uh, for for investors right now? As we've been rotating our exposure gradually away from uh, U.S. markets, we're slightly underweight U.S. markets, uh, and uh, we have good exposure in Canada. We've been benefiting from the recovery in resource prices and certainly the recovery in the Canadian dollar, which is uh, associated with that. Um, uh, Europe looks cheap to us. The United Kingdom looks cheap. Asia looks attractive. And even the emerging markets, which had moved so strongly over the last 12 months, are still not overvalued, much closer to equilibrium than certainly the U.S. market. You know, all that said, all that said, again, we're not particularly concerned about the U.S. market over the intermediate term, again, a little ahead of itself. One of the things we see happening in that market spills to all other markets. We've seen a big transition of leadership. 
You know that for the first part of this bull market, it was all IT and companies that benefited from work from home. Other names have caught up. The gap in performance is no longer that large. It's fairly similar across the market all of a sudden. The market's been led by value, not growth. That tends to be a precursor of a long economic cycle. All these things suggest good things in the future. But as you say, there are always better or worse values out there. And right now, we think that outside of the United States represents better values than within the United States. And, and, and Dan, so this, so this fast that we've seen out of the bottom of the pandemic last last March, uh, and, and we've seen a, a real significant bounce back, I, I, I think you know, we, we would even admit that it, it surprised us how strongly markets have come back and the levels that we've, we've got markets at, which we've which we talked about. Does that set us up as, as we continue to move through the cycle that we, that we may have seen the best of the cycle in terms of raw returns and that we should maybe temper our overall expectations down in the different asset classes for, for well, future returns? That's certainly true for every cycle and maybe especially for this cycle. That as the, as the market moves out of a very depressed low, there's a quick catchback where companies begin to reprice in the core level of earnings. And then, as you advance into the next stage of the cycle, we realize that earnings will actually grow through the cycle. So stock prices are then driven not by P.E. expansion, which is looking forward, but by actual earnings growth. And that, you know, typical earnings growth averages 6-7% a year for most markets. The, uh, so you move from explosive gains to more, to more you know, uh, uh, sustainable gains. And I think we're probably approaching the next leg of the market being much more like that. I think that essentially you should look for something like low single-digit returns in uh, in fixed income and, and mid-single digits, maybe high single-digit returns out of equities on a go-forward basis. Yeah, and, and very important, whenever, whenever I raise that, that point, uh, it, it's really important to say that when, when we talk about future returns being reduced, we're not necessarily saying negative, or we're, we're not saying negative. We're saying that you're, instead of getting, you know, as we've seen a, an 80% bounce back uh, this o- over the last 12 months. We're now talking about going into you know five to seven percent kind of returns as you move forward in, in in equity markets. Just positive returns, but much more modest, and as you say, driven driven by earnings as opposed to more optimism about the future. And I think importantly. Uh, significantly uh, higher earn, uh, returns as much as they're in the single-digit area in stocks, significantly above those that we'd expect out of bonds. And as a result of that, we've continued to run an overweight in equities and a, and a mild underweight in bonds. And, 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 and Dan, that, that's something that, um, that, that we talked about, I think, the last time you were on. Uh, that was a, a strategic asset allocation move uh, that you made last year looking forward that you, you, you took – uh, for a balanced portfolio, uh, for example, you took 5% out of what was in fixed income and your benchmark weighting was that 5% was moved to equity. So your equity weighting went up 5%. That's sort of your benchmark. And then it's the, the more tactical asset allocations, uh, the short term, which you've actually gone the other way. Uh, but, but overall, you really view the right structure for portfolios to be tilted more towards equity for the foreseeable future. You know, we did some, we read a fascinating paper uh, across the investment platform, shared it over the last four or five years. It was originally written by the Bank of England in 2016 and followed up by the Fed on, on the, the real rate of interest around the world. And, and it showed that 
that over the prior 40 years, especially since, since, since I entered the business, when you had a high real rate of interest, 6 7 8%, that's the after inflation interest rate uh, in Canada, the United States, and Europe, uh, independent of whether you're in a country with a strong central bank, a weak central bank, high inflation, low inflation, uh, uh, rising, falling demographic, didn't matter, Demo democratic system, totalitarian system, your real rate of interest fell from about 6% to something like 0% or below over the following 40 years. So all of the explanations, the monetary explanations were provided were essentially wrong because it happened everywhere. And, and when they disaggregated the reasons, it's, a, it's, it's one of the most amazing economic articles I've ever read. It showed that of, of all the things that move the real rate of interest around, it's usually demographic related. So as the, as the uh, developed world, uh, became wealthier, its family size fell, and as the emerging world emerged, the same thing happened, and nominal GDP growth therefore started to fall, and nominal GDP growth is highly associated with real rates of interest. So when you forecast these things, and these are really easy forecasts because demographics move slowly and we're well informed on them, basically you might get back up to 0 to 1%, but you're not getting to 6% where we came from. And, the, and real rates of interest are the base rate of return for asset prices. So you add to that, a, a, you know, an inflation premium, maybe it's two, add to that a term premium to get to what a 10-year bond yield should be, and you're talking about a 3.5% bond yield. So we almost made 2% a few weeks ago. Where might we go over the cycle ahead? Eh, two to three, maybe not even. And so that's what you expect a rate of return would be on a bond over the future. Call it 3%. And then add a 300 or 350 basis point risk premium for stocks, and you're talking about six and a half, seven percent returns for stocks. So think of this: a 60/40 balanced fund has earned you somewhere between eight and 11 percent, whether you go a 10, 20, or 30-year time horizon. So we're carrying around in our minds: I just want to make eight percent of my balanced fund, and that's probably what we have buried in our in our savings uh, uh, estimates for our for our retirement plan. But you take 40% of a 3% return on bonds and 60% of a, I don't know, 7% return on stocks, 6.5%, you end up with 5% being your terminal return target, not 8 or 9%. So you need to shift things around. Number one, maybe you can extend your time horizon. Most of us actually can in our long-term savings plans. Buy a little more equities. Count on time to get you back on side always worked in the past. Uh, two, move out of the sovereign bond market into credit. And within credit, maybe a little bit of high yield can help. We're not talking about replacing your government of Canada bonds with some, you know, the Argentinian long bonds. We're saying that maybe there's room for a little bit more risk in that credit portfolio. You know, and, then, and then there's this great white spot that exists between, between the, the former role of sovereign bonds, which was to provide, to provide you with cash flow, and to attenuate risk in equities, and then your equity portfolio, which is you know the adventure that gives you the higher returns. And you need to find things to fill that space, things that mimic the prior role of sovereign bonds. So we think private markets do that. We, we believe in adding real estate allocations to which we've done in our own balance portfolios. We uh, we think that some absolute return product that doesn't give up too much of the upside but buys you downside protection. Uh, is quite useful in that area. And we've been building out those areas of our portfolios as well. I think the key thing is, though, whether you do exactly what we did 
you might be interested in what we did, is you need to do something here about focusing on what long-term returns are going to be and reflect that either in your expected savings programs or in what you're investing in to achieve the old goals. Yeah, and, and that's why I thought it was so important to get to, to, to get you on today uh, and, 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 and to run a little longer than we normally do uh, to, to, to make sure all, all the nuance around that point is, 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 is clarified for people because it, it, it really is the right time to be looking at something because as we're moving out of this pandemic, we're in a different world. And there's things you can do to, to, to take control and to position your portfolio for success in any kind of market. Uh, and this is one, again, that you, you've got to pay a little bit of attention to as, as, as you've been doing at Global Asset Management. So, Dan, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for, for your time, as always. It's, uh, it, it's, it's always great to see you, uh, even if it's just by, uh, by video. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to get you on again soon. Well, we're all looking forward to getting back to our old lives, that's for sure, Dave. And take care of yourself and I hope everybody on the, uh, on the call as well. Bye, Dave. Bye.